temper tantrums to crying cancel culture are everywhere. In the news, on social media, and now even in our government. But what's really going on? A new podcast demystifies the panic and dispels the many myths about cancel culture. It's called Cancel Me Daddy. It's hosted by Caitlin Burns, the very first openly transgender reporter on Capitol Hill, and our very own Oliver Ash Klein, who's actually my producer here on Brave Not Perfect and one of the founding members of the Trans Journalists Association. Caitlin and Oliver Ash shed light on what they call the cancel culture grift economy, delving into the latest scandals, laughing at the most outrageous takes, and taking a closer look at whose voices are actually being silenced in these conversations. It's fascinating, funny, and often surprising show that I think you're really gonna enjoy. Subscribe to Cancel Me Daddy right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Or you might get canceled. Hey, it's Reshma. Before we get started with today's show, I want to check in and see how you're doing. I know we're all going through a really tough time right now, and I'm thinking of each and every one of you. Life feels pretty surreal, doesn't it? Usually around this time, we're getting out to enjoy the first signs of warmer weather, gearing up for the end of the school year, and making plans for the summer. Instead, we're all navigating a new normal. So much feels uncertain right now, and it may be that way for a little while longer. But I've been so moved, so inspired by our community. You've stepped up to support one another in a million amazing ways. In the coming weeks, I'm gonna be coming to you with ideas on how to stay brave. I really do believe that some of our biggest acts of bravery, of courage, come during times of crisis. I wouldn't be surprised if one of my girls at Girls Who Code is out there right now, coding an app to get food to seniors, or building a website to help small businesses, or mapping the vaccine to the virus. Because in times of crisis, we learn, we innovate, we work. We work to protect our neighbors, our families, our communities. This community, this sisterhood we have is powerful. Let's use it and let's protect it. Yes, that means washing your hands for 30 seconds to the full tune of happy birthday. Or if you're me, Love on Top by Beyonce. But it also means checking in on each other, calling, FaceTiming, writing. Stay safe. We need you. We need each other. Hey everyone, it's Rashma and you're listening to Brave Not Perfect. I'm on a mission to help us all break away from the cult of perfection and live bolder, happier lives. Today, we're looking at relationships and love. And I'm gonna be honest, this is something I struggle with. I'm just not romantic, and I don't like being vulnerable and raw. I joke with Nahal and my husband that literally our dog taught me how to love. But part of bravery is admitting to yourself where you might not be very brave and thinking about where you want to work that bravery muscle. Joining me today to talk about bravery in relationships is the comedian Cameron Esposito. If you haven't seen her stand up, I highly recommend you check it out. She's hilarious. Not only that, she's committed to making the world a better place. Cameron used her recent comedy special called Rape Jokes to raise money for rape crisis intervention. 
she's raised over $100,000. It's no surprise that Cameron's new memoir, Save Yourself, is also hilarious. It's a coming-of-age story packed with cringeworthy stories anyone who's gone through puberty can totally relate to. Save Yourself chronicles her time coming out at a Catholic college where being gay could get you expelled, joining the circus, and pursuing her dreams of being a stand-up comic. Cameron was kind enough to take the time to have a conversation with me about bravery and relationships at a time when she's going through a divorce. Let's listen in. I want to start talking about your new book, Save Yourself. Tell me everything. uh, What inspired you? Like, all of it. What inspired me? (laughs) I'll tell you, it's a weird one. I, years ago, I made a bunch of videos for BuzzFeed that were called Ask a Lesbian. Hmm. And a publisher reached out to me and said, I would love to turn this into a book, like like one of those books that you buy at Urban Outfitters, like as you're leaving, you know, like a, Mm -hmm. just like a bunch of joke, like a joking around book, (laughs) like a coffee table book. Right. Yes. And I only do things in a complicated way. So I said, in fact, I'd like to write like a memoir that's like kind of serious and, and also very, very funny, but um, like heartfelt and personal so what about that? And do you think that works for Urban Outfitters? <laughs> and um, anyway, that's what that's what eventually became this book. Um, you know, I, that series, um, while I think that was helpful for me and for other queer folks, there's actually like a lot of r- real pain and like a long form version of a jokey poppy, you know, several million view internet video. And so that is where my interest went is less like let's joke around about who is hot and more let's talk a little bit more about the pain that happened that made me such a funny person (laughs) it's powerful so when you think about save yourself you know what would that young timid girl that's reading your book learn about bravery from save yourself and about love and relationships I didn't know to pay attention to myself. It's impossible to save yourself if you are not paying attention to yourself. And like that, the title has like a, you know, it's um, has a double meaning because I also was actually saving myself for marriage. I was a super religious person. I was looking to God uh, to save me. Um, And then I lost my faith and I sort of used stand up to put myself back together but you know the the whole thing the everything that was that was going on the entire time was i knew myself and i couldn't figure out whether or not i should ignore what was true hmm. and you know the other thing that's that that is real is even if i had known myself sooner and paid more attention to the crushes I was having or like the haircut that I wanted to have. That doesn't mean that culture then flips and I'm fine. Because there's two things going on. Like that thing of believe someone when they tell you the first time who they are. Believe yourself when you tell yourself the first time who you are. But there's no version of it where then I get to dodge Catholicism crashing down on me or like homophobia out in the world. Because that's, I think, another thing that we do is – 
you know, and certainly something I do where it's like, I love myself so much. I'm not even affected by this shit. And it's like, no, um, there's two things. I didn't trust myself and that made it really hard for me to be who I am. But also I am a marginalized person and being marginalized means that you accrue trauma over your lifetime. And that's just true. Do you feel like you're brave in your personal relationships? You know, it's it's like maybe backwards of how it is for some folks. For me, it is easier to talk to like 2,000 or 20,000 people than it is to talk to some well, one person sometimes. And it's not like it's not about casual conversation, but about intimacy and about pain. Sometimes I feel like a burden or I feel like my problems are best for me to deal with alone. This is a behavior and a thought pattern that I am actively working to unlearn. And for me, historically, what has been easier was to believe that people wanted to hear something if they were being entertained and if it wasn't so serious and if it was something that they were paying for. You know, really, rape jokes is the thing that sort of broke that um, for me because, I don't know, I had friends tell me, and actually I've had this happen with the book, Save Yourself, too, because I've given it to some people and I've had people tell me, like, I didn't know this thing that's in this book or I didn't know this thing that you just talked about on stage. And I'm like, well, that's actually fucked up. I've gone ahead and now I've now the, you know, the snake has eaten its own tail and I'm telling strangers things I'm not telling my friends. And I think that's probably always been true, but I just didn't it didn't it's come into relief in a different way. That's so um you said something in your New York Times story that just I really resonated with me and something you just said right now. You said, my life has been typified by my obsession with being a survivor, the comeback kid, right? And I, I resonated with that. Like I will tell, I will do an Instagram post on my miscarriages and my APS and my surrogacy. But I recognize that there are people I've known for 20 years that I haven't told that I'm having a baby via surrogate yet. And it's almost like I feel this obligation to share my pain to help heal others. But I don't similarly feel comfortable being vulnerable in my most personal relationships. I think we I think almost everybody is doing the thing that you're talking about there. I know I do it. Um, I think it's a way of packaging something that is really serious and that is going on in a way that feels more like it is diluted by the number of people that are seeing it. So it's not, again, just to speak about this thing where it's like to share your honest, your what's going on with you honestly with another person, you know, I feel this sense of burdening someone when in fact it's like, that's like such an amazing gift because it allows that person to then feel that they can be safe to tell you the truth with, with what's going on. But we've like kind of... I, I feel that I have been working that out of my life for a very long time, that this is what's really going on. This is what's really going on. I don't know that I've ever been good at that. And so for me, social media is like a, a great way um, or the stage is a great way of like saying it writ large. Man, this is like the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Let me describe it to you. And then we and then everybody knows. But it, I don't have to feel like I'm like trapping someone. And that is. That like idea that, you know, that talking about a miscarriage or that like that that is too intimate. Um, and I don't even know if that's where you're coming from or why 
why you're operating that way, but but it's it's it sucks. Yeah. I I hate that. I don't like that in in myself because it is preventing me from having the types of relationships I want. So um, it's interesting that you say that. Like you, so in some ways, it's like the fear of intimacy with the people that are closest to you. You were saying like for you, it's about like you feel like you're trapping them. I think for yes. me. It's about I feel embarrassed, I think. So when you say like, when you, what do you mean by trapping? I'm, I'm curious about. Yeah, maybe it is with my embarrassment. Like maybe that's kind of the same sort of a thing. You know, that like it's a that these are the uncomfortable emotions that we so off that we like sweep under the rug in favor of these survivor. You know, I rose above it emotions, you know, like the like. Mm. Showing somebody my unresolved pain or my um, sadness, you know, that to me feels like, oh, they won't know how to respond or it will be tough for them or they're already dealing with their own shit. They don't need my thing to add to it, you know, and there is some embarrassment there, right? Like it's embarrassing to not be crushing it like and that and that um, that is a bummer. That it's embarrassing to not be crushing it because human life works in a way that we will always, there will always be a time when we are not crushing it. That's, it's just impossible. So it's, it's, it's like if I'm not achieving this impossible standard of being able to take every loss and turn it into the most magical piece of art while feeling no pain, you know, like it's like the art just flies out of me and I'm just like, you know a vessel or whatever. I mean, that's, that's what I expect of myself. And it is bonkers that that's what I expect. I was really moved by your piece in the New York Times, uh, when you wrote about your divorce. And what I was really moved by, again, is about how much you kind of struggled with the fact that your marriage fell apart. And that was almost like a, a reflection upon you. What did writing that piece do for you? You know, part of it was just what it did for me was gave me an opportunity to be honest. Again, I think I had some expectations of myself that I would be okay or that other people would know how hard it was without having to tell them. My experience instead has been that people don't know what to do. They don't know how to act because we're humans are you know, we're just all doing the best we can, but we're limited. When it's a tough conversation, sometimes people just don't have it. It's like somebody I know really well, and I haven't seen them in a long time, and they'll be like, so what's been going on? And I'm like, you know what's been going on. Yeah. Like, it's like, it'll, it'll, it'll be like a weird avoidance of the thing, which is very strange. Another thing is, um, I think, some folks expecting me not to be sad, you know, like expecting um, that just because I'm a stand-up comic, like I should be able to be f- funny about. And by the way, I am very f- funny about this because it's this is one way I process the world. But also like, but I'm also sad. And it's not, I'm not like a an emotionless uh, robot, which I think is an expectation I have had of myself and also an expectation I have felt from others going through this. So I think it just was a, 
I mean, it was a really tough piece to publish because I felt immediate shame upon sharing what I actually felt. Um, but I also felt really grateful for the platform and for the folks that reached out and were like, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about, which was a lot of people. Oh, yeah. And a lot of people that really mattered to me, too, like people who um, mattered to me because of like literally their historical significance or because they were heroes of mine. And I got to hear from a lot of people that it was really cool to hear from. So I got married. I think I was 35. <laughs> um, and I had this kind of idea in my head, right, um, that not much was going to change. Um, I think I had I had my first child when I was 39. Um, and I think that there's, you know, especially getting married, I think later in your life, much of your personality is already like very fixed. Right. And so, you know, what's your thoughts about like, how do you adjust to another person? How do you grow with them? How do you continue to like not lose yourself like in your relationships? Man, that's a really interesting question. Um, I don't know. I, I think, well, for me, this is really impacted by Two, two things my my queerness um which changes the timeline for different life markers substantially i i went to a friend's in, um baby shower one time and asked my straight friends how did you decide that you were going to carry because i forgot that like my friend looked at me she was like wait what and yeah. i was like well how did you know that you like you were going to and i realized that like it's just totally different for straight people <laughs> Because, and I'm not saying everybody um, has the same opportunity to care. Obviously, like infertility is a huge thing. And also some people don't want to have kids. But what I mean is, I think in your mind from a young age, it must be different to know that there's like a biological, especially if you're a woman or somebody with um, a uterus, to know that there's a biological clock that you like have access to in a different way like for me it was always going to be complicated to have kids so I think that changes when you decide to commit and how you decide to save your money I think it has a lot of reverberating um, effects and then in the queer community because that's true for so many people it like reshaped an entire community of people and then I also live in Los Angeles and I'm in the entertainment industry people tend to need to work throughout their entire 30s mm. and so that also pushes your your timeline for committing to another person later. So there's a lot of folks in my life who like are my friends from college who like they got married at 24 and then they had kids like at 29. Um, and that is so, I'm so outside of that loop. I think that that means that I and other people, maybe even like yourself, th and then I'm pushing back on everything else that culture has ascribed to a certain story that I don't fit in. Yeah. So like, I mean, everything from like, like when I got married, having a registry <laughs> and it's like, but I already had a lot of stuff because <laughs> I was a different age. Like I wasn't 25 and I didn't need my first dishes. So it was very strange to then figure out well, what am I supposed to do here, you know? Um, and I think in terms of merging your life with someone else, it, it does often mean that like, I feel like I, I feel like it meant for me that I was floundering a little bit longer because there wasn't any script to follow. And that is amazing. 
I feel like if you're a straight person in a, in a cis relationship and you like, I feel like maybe you're trapped by a script sometime or that you feel like you have to, there's a lot of pressure to follow a script. There's also a lot of pressure when you have no script. Mm. Both things have a lot of pressure because then you're inventing life. You're like inventing the concept of life. I think if you put two people together who are dealing with that, it is really difficult to then plan, well, okay, so I guess we'll buy a house. I don't know what you're supposed to do. And I think for me in um, relationships, one thing that I'm trying to figure out is what do I actually want given that so many things are open to me? It's like almost too much. I could almost, I could almost use some fucking like terrible societal pressure that would maybe be helpful. What I am learning is that, um, you know, queer folks are, we are the same as everyone else in terms of our relationships. I think because we wait until later or maybe our social markers are different because kids are involved in a different way or like this pressure to, to share the same group of friends or to be in the same subculture. I think that for some reason I thought like I fell into a different category of people where it's like, but we, you know, stay friends. We work it out. We are polyamorous. We, you know, like every non-traditional thing is something I thought I inhabited and now I'm just realizing like oh shit's just fucked up like you're just a person and marriages just end sometimes and it's awful also and it's not um it's not something that that I can control by being cool or gay or queer or having the right haircut or the or the coolest jacket Right. Or that you have a greater obligation for it to succeed. Right. That's what I felt like I was moved by what your times piece, which was like essentially like, you know, because we have this, it had to work out. You know, now it's not. And like, how do I not to internalize that? Um, I heard that you performed with your ex. The event was booked when you guys were still together uh, and you didn't communicate it at all about the performance. Um, that must have been hard. <laughs> Talk to me about the bravery there and what that was like. Um, my job is what I always wanted to do, or like not always, but since I was an adult that thought I could have a job when I was younger, I wanted to be a priest. Um, but I get to do the job that I wanted. And in terms of human history, that's true for like, zero percent of people nobody actually gets to do that the, the job that they wanted to do and my job also sucks sometimes um one thing that has sucked is that um in the last 18 months i have been dealing with things that i cannot as of right now you know, talk about publicly and may never be able to talk about publicly. And to then get up on stage and have to speak out of your mouth for an hour. And this is not, I mean, this was true many times in the last 18 months. Um, and to talk and just to talk about like some bullshit or try to be fun and funny or to go do an acting gig and have to like put on a face that is different from how I feel. And, um, what I have realized is that this is what so many people deal with. Like our parents die or our dogs run away or we fucking crash the car and we have to go do our job. 
And it sucks. I wish that, um, I wish I could call out separated, you know, I wish I could have called in to work divorced. Um, but I didn't get to, and nobody really does, you know, I mean, sure, we can take time to take care of ourselves, And I really have done that. Um, I haven't put myself into dangerous situations as best I could, even though sometimes like we don't know what's going to be mentally dangerous for us until we show up and, you know, emotionally dangerous to us. Um, but I tried to make good decisions. And in the midst of all that, it's been fucking hard. You know, I've had like a different relationship with social media in the last 18 months than I have in the past where like I delete it from my phone um, and then I reinstall it to post stuff because it's not actually super helpful for me to scroll around on there right now. And I also don't have as much to say um, because a lot of stuff that I'm walking through, I'm walking through um, just personally. And mm. I don't think this will always be true, but that's what's happening right now. And I think it's also true for a lot of people that find themselves in the public eye. I don't think people talk about this thing, which is that you have to kind of dip out, you know, and you show up at events um, and you do your job, but you're not maybe the same in terms of openness as used to be. But it's also probably true for, you know, listeners who are like a lawyer or listeners who work at Starbucks or listeners who have any job at all. Yeah. Because sometimes you don't fucking feel like being there. Um, or sometimes you have some stuff that you wish you could talk about, um, but instead you just got to take, you just got to make this latte. Yeah. It's such a powerful point, Cameron, because I feel like you're right. I th and I, I think it's particularly true for women and for marginalized communities that we always, we have to show up when we shouldn't have to show up in some ways. And, and I think having to show up in those moments oftentimes like kills you softly when you do it too many times. You know what I mean? And like one of the things that I really try to teach my listeners and the people in the Brain Our Perfect community is like, how do you find the courage to say, nope, not going to do it. And, 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 and I think that that's a really important skill. Because I do think that when you think about how much anxiety and depression that there is in our society, it's often a result of this. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, you know, like I, like I said, we all have jobs. So sometimes there are things that are unavoidably part of your work you know also we we make we make choices that like there's no there is no good answer that's the other thing not everything in life has has a best sometimes you just you just make the choice and then you and then you just do the thing and it was hard in one way and it was good in another way and not everything's so black and white and i think there's a lot of pressure i can put on myself to try to come up with the perfect solution or the perfect choice. But that's not really real. Yeah. So tell me, how's your self-care routine right now? Actually, great. Yeah. It's like top, top 10 best self-care routines of all people. I've, I've scaled everyone. <laughs> you want to give our listeners some tips of some of the things that you do to make sure that you feel healthy and charged and present? Well, I will say I don't feel as healthy and charged and present as I always am. And the number one thing I do is I accept that. Um, and that is really important. Can't mm -hmm. always – there's just not always a horse to get back on. Sometimes you just got to walk for a minute. Um, and so that's where I'm at. I'm showing up for myself in terms of doing the job that I have. I'm trying to be honest um, while also not giving every single detail away to every single person. I go to individual therapy. I go to group therapy. I um, try to stay really active in terms of 
exercise because that's something that really helps me to clear my mind. And um, I also have been doing that with other people in the last year. So like I've been running with friends or um, hiking with friends, which is usually something I would do alone. I've been trying to invite other people in. Um, And so, yeah, like I actually am very proud of myself for the choices that I have made, um, given like a tougher obstacle um, or actually like many individual tougher obstacles popped into my life. And um, I've made some like very solid choices. Good for you. Um, So how can listeners follow you and support your work? Well, I'm Cameron Esposito on all social stuff. And like I said, I do install it and occasionally post. (laughs) Um, We're recording this in advance, but I bet I just went on a big book tour. So I hope I saw you there. But if I missed you, you can get my book still at SaveYourselfBook.com or like any retailer. Wow, that's exciting. Amazing. Awesome. Appreciate y'all. That was comedian Cameron Esposito. Her new memoir, Save Yourself, is out now, and it is amazing. She also has a great interview podcast called Query, where she has smart conversations with luminaries in the LGBTQ community. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. In just a minute, I'm going to answer your tough questions about bravery in relationships. Sit tight. Do you ever look around and think, gosh, people can be real jerks? You know where that starts? childhood. Good Kids is a new podcast from Lemonada Media that offers 15-minute TED-style episodes in the form of rants, stories, and reflections on how to raise kinder, gentler humans. If you want your parenting advice in bite-sized chunks, you're going to love Good Kids. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ashley. I'm Rushma's podcast producer, and I'm here to bring her some of the questions that you have been sending in by email and social media. This is like my favorite part of the show. Bring it. One of your listeners wrote in about making time for relationships. Uh They wanted to know what advice you have for a law student like them dating a med student. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So these are two people with like almost no spare time at all who are just trying to make a relationship work. Right. Sounds like my life right now. I mean, look, I think the thing is like, Nahal and I just try to make as much time as we can, even if it's like 30 minutes to like walk the dog together. You know, yes, we'd love to like plan an elaborate date night and like commit to it and put it on the calendar like, you know, once a week. But I think it's about like getting as much time as you can and not judging yourself or feeling bad if it's like not the time that you wanted to have, if that makes sense. Like sometimes it's just... I don't know. Sometimes, literally, when Nahal and I take Stanley for a walk together, and we just have five minutes to catch up around the block, it's what we needed to recharge our relationship. Totally. Um, I think something else to think about is just like what is quality time for both of you? What kind of thing do you both value? So, is it just like sitting on the couch yeah. and like watching TV, yeah. or or is it going out to dinner? And sometimes you can't do all of those things, but thinking about like what really matters to both of you. Yeah, or the thing that you would want to do on your spare time that you guys like to do together. Yeah, I think that everything you said makes sense. 
Wishing the very busy couple lots of quality time in 2020. So our next question, I think, is going to be helpful to quite a few other people listening. All right. One person wanted to know how you use the Brave Not Perfect philosophy in dating. This person is single and 30 years old. Yeah. I have a lot of friends that are like late 30s or early 40s that are single and still looking for love. And I think the thing that I tell them is like, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. It's almost like many ways, like I feel like the older you get, the more set you are in your ways. And it may be like the more you're, you feel like you don't want to compromise or it's not worth it to compromise. Um, for me, I think partnership is ultimately about finding your best friend. So it's like not like checking off, right, all these qualities that you are supposed to have in your dream partner. But like at the end of the day, like, is this somebody that you want to like break bread with, like go on vacation with, like take a walk with, get advice from, like, is this someone who has your back? Totally. And I think one thing that is really hard to remember about dating is that when you are dating, you're trying to figure out who you like as much as trying to impress the other person. Yeah. Right. Such a good point. Like as a people pleaser, it's really hard to let go of you're trying to be the perfect person and just be yourself and actually make sure that the other person is who you want to be with. Right, right. Like They're not interviewing you, you're interviewing them. And I think putting that at the center, I think is really important. Also, I think I always tell people like, I feel like who you choose to spend your life with is the most important decision you will ever make. And it literally affects everything around you. You're like your mental health, your professional success, like everything. And so um, it's like, I almost want to tell people to like, take the pressure off the decision and just like open your heart to love. You know, I also think it's so important in dating to like take the first step to put yourself out there. Don't wait for somebody to come to you. If you know what you want, go out there and find it. I know that you got married in your mid-30s, and I'm wondering if you started dating Nahal in your 30s. I started dating Nahal in my early, early 30s, maybe. We got married in, in some ways, I would have been saying my late 30s. Uh, he had to ask me three times to before I said yes. By then, I just, I really wanted to make sure that, like, he wanted to go on this journey with me, right? That I had all these things that I wanted to do and these experiences that I wanted to have, and it wasn't going to be... In many ways, you know, we weren't going to have the typical marriage. And I wanted to make sure he was down for that. And how did you practice bravery while you were dating? Ah, I, I got better at it. I wasn't I wasn't very brave in the beginning. I think I did feel like, oh, am I being interviewed? And how do I put on the perfect self to like to get that person? And then I think the older I got, the more I really started thinking about what it was that I wanted. Mm. It was hard. You know, I think finding love is hard. I think finding someone to spend your life with is like incredibly hard and painful. I think that's a lot of smart advice for dating in your 30s, but also at any age at all. Okay, I really feel for this next person who's sending in a question. Um, they want to know how to be strong at work after losing their husband. And their colleagues are super sad for them, and they're trying to navigate how to be comfortable at work. That's really hard. Well, first of all, I'm so sorry for your loss. And, you know, I think the most important thing is to put yourself first and to not worry about what other people feel or think. You get to be selfish at this moment and do and be and speak whatever works for you and whatever you need and putting yourself and your self-care and your health at the center. Yeah, and I think... um 
you know, you might not know what you want from your colleagues, but if you do, I think it's okay to communicate to them, right? Yeah, Ashley, that's such a great point. Um, especially, I think sometimes people are more awkward when they don't know how to be. Mm-hmm. And I think if you can have the bravery to communicate what you need, it may actually help uh, not only you, but them. And, you know, I think another thing that's really important is to let yourself not be okay all the time yeah. and let yourself go through what you're going through. Yeah. Or, you know, go in the bathroom and cry or go home. I think it's so important in these moments like to not bottle up your emotions. You know, that we oftentimes suffer silently mm-hmm. or feel shameful when we're feeling these emotions or when we feel grief. It's a human emotion that we feel and you need to just let it out. Definitely. And I think that, you know, if you can afford therapy, definitely go. You're going through a lot. And if you can't, maybe there's group therapy or an online support group somewhere where you can really get the support that you need. Absolutely. My heart really goes out to you. And I hope that you get the support that you need both, you know, at work and outside of work. Okay. So our last question today has to do with in-laws. And one listener wrote in asking how they might respond to in-laws with different political views. And here's a big one. How to deal with their spouse who's reverting back to those beliefs when they're around. Oh, gosh. That's really, 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 really hard. Yeah. (laughs) You know, in-law relationships are already hard. Uh, and you're already, you know, have so many dynamics that adding in politics and people's political persuasions on top of that makes it even more complicated. But at the same time, I also do think that we have to start having these conversations too, right? Because that's what is making us feel like we're so divided right now that we're just avoiding people who don't have the same opinions that we have. So maybe it's about finding the right time and space to engage in those conversations if you feel like you can do it in a way that you don't walk out away angry. Yeah. And I think walking away angry is okay sometimes. Yeah. I guess just not every time. <laughs> so I I have a lot of feelings about this one. Okay. Um, that may not be the most helpful. <laughs> but I'm wondering, like, why is your partner reverting back to yeah. these beliefs? Is this what your partner really believes? Do they just kind of adapt to whoever's around them? Like, what's going on? And I think that, like, if these aren't your partner's beliefs, like, they've got to back you up when they're around their family. Totally. And that's a that's a good lesson for anything, right? It's like, oftentimes, we revert back to who we were as kids around our parents, and that can be very stressful on the relationship and on the marriage. And so I think having that honest conversation about that, that that's happening and how that's making you feel is just important for the entire relationship. Yeah, I think you've got to really talk to your partner and they've got to be your backup. I couldn't agree more. Um, and they listen, I think at this moment too, it's like we got to know what we believe and what we're about and like what we stand for. And that doesn't mean that you can't have relationships and conversations with people who are not of the same persuasion as you. In fact, I think it's more important than ever to try to find at least some common ground or respectfully disagree. Um, but you know, you don't want to be someone who's like wavering back and forth on your convictions. Well, that is all of the time that we have for today. Oh, that was so much fun. Thank you so much for sending in your questions. I love getting them. Keep sending them to me. I love being able to share what I've learned to help you be more brave. And if you're struggling with something and you want advice, send me an email at bravenotperfect at girlswhocode.com or leave a voicemail at 347-76-BRAVE. And I might just answer your question on the show. 
Did you enjoy today's show? Then you should make sure to subscribe to Brave Not Perfect. That way, you don't miss one of the exciting shows we have coming up. In two weeks, we've got another extra special episode planned for you about bravery and making positive change in the world with the one and only Cecile Richards. She's the former head of Planned Parenthood and co-founder of Supermajority. That's an organization strengthening the political power of women through advocacy, building community, and supporting women getting involved in the political process. If you're going to talk the talk, you've got to also walk the walk. And I thought, look, it's important that um, I make space uh, and there'll be another person who can do this. There's a lot of other things I can do. And so it was scary and it still is. Brave Not Perfect comes out every other Tuesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Ashley Dejan, the executive producer of the show. Tanya Zaporanik and Charlotte Stone are my co-producers. And we, of course, couldn't do it without the support of Deborah Singer and Jenny Josephson. Stay safe, and we'll see you soon.